Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Common Room Talk. My name's Tony, and I'm your host. Last week, we ended with Harry and Hagrid walking through the brick archway into Diagon Alley. They had just come in through the Leaky Cauldron, met all of the people that were in there that were over the moon about seeing Harry essentially grown up, getting ready to go to Hogwarts. Not grown up as in like a grown up, but finally of age to go to school and re-enter the wizarding world. And something that I was thinking about was they honestly probably had no idea where he has been, what he has been up to. And all you see from them is just this awe and reverence for Harry and what he had done as a baby, even though he didn't do anything. But they don't know that. They think it's him. Something that we we do see later on in the series is kind of like speculation of Harry by some of the other students about how he actually overcame Voldemort. And some of them are thinking that he is maybe a dark wizard himself. But really, in truth, we know that he didn't do anything other than just sit there and get blasted in the face by a killing curse. Uh, It was his mom who did all of the work. And yeah, these people in the Leaky Cauldron really just had no idea what Harry had been up to. And so Harry and Hagrid run into Professor Quirrell, and we, we meet him for the first time, and he is jittery, shaky, and we find out that he is a professor at Hogwarts. He will be teaching Harry Defense Against the Dark Arts, and we see that he's a scared person, and that he, uh, according to Hagrid, is really just afraid of everything, his own shadow. It doesn't matter. You name it, he's probably afraid of it. Now, before we leave the Leaky Cauldron, I want to read something from Pottermore about the Leaky Cauldron. The oldest pub in London, as any wizard will tell you, is the Leaky Cauldron on Charing Cross Road. The Leaky Cauldron was there long before Charing Cross Road was even planned. Its true address is number one, Diagon Alley, and it is believed to have been built sometime in the early 1500s, along with the rest of the Wizarding Street. Created some two centuries before the imposition of the International Statute of Secrecy, the Leaky Cauldron was initially visible to muggles. And yeah, that's some of the backstory to the Leaky Cauldron. Then they leave out the Leaky Cauldron through the back, come to the brick wall where they tap the bricks in a certain order, and... The bricks move, they rotate, they twist, they turn, and they create an archway that looks into this alley that twists and turns and is just, it looks like chaos almost. But this is Diagon Alley that we're looking at. This is just our dreams. This is everyone's dream to to see this, to, to be there, and to experience this. And this is where this episode is going to open is with them and with Hagrid saying, Welcome to Diagon Alley. And so it says that that Harry grinned, he's beside himself, they walk through the archway, and Harry looks back to the archway, and instantly it shrank back into being just a solid wall. And the very next sentence, it says, The sun shone brightly on a stack of cauldrons outside the nearest shop. And something that I want to point out is this, is that, like, this is the 90s. Airplanes are a thing. Muggles are flying. They're coming over top of this. And it makes me wonder, then, if there is also some kind of 
illusionary magic going on here. Like if you were to be in a plane looking down or a helicopter looking down, would you be able to see into Diagon Alley? I'm going to say there probably is something on there. There's some kind of enchantment making it to where if you were looking at it, kind of like if you look at Hogwarts, it looks like a rundown, just kind of dump that you don't want to go into, like a hazardous place to be, which for me, it would be inviting. My wife and I love urban exploring like that. We would love to go look into a place that looked like it was uh, falling apart and uh, check that out, honestly. But there are other places kind of like St. Mungo's that it looks like, a, like I think it says an old department store that's no longer open. Uh, it just says closed all the time. If I remember correctly, I don't I don't have the book next to me to, to look into it, but somebody says this place is never open. But honestly, it's just a hospital uh, that has this enchantment on it to, to look like that. And so I'm pretty sure that Diagon Alley has some sort of enchantment on it to make it to where if you were looking down into it, you wouldn't be able to see what's going on. It would probably look different, or it might even just look normal. They might have made it look like a normal alley, something that wasn't really inviting. And here in the book, again, using the illustrated version, illustrated by Jim Kay, we have our first look at Diagon Alley. Something that I really love about this is, is Jim Kay added a lot to Diagon Alley. There, there are a few things in here that are just, I, I believe, his own creation. But when you look at this picture, from left to right, it's taking up both pages on the bottom half. And you have one long line of shops. And it ends on the right page on the right-hand side with Madame Malcolm's robe shop, then Flourish and Blots. And then on the left and that, you have Petty Chaps shirts for squirts. And next to that, it looks like you have Twinkle's Telescopes. It's a little telescope shop in there. Our telescope's kind of just sticking out of every window. Uh, it looks like maybe some kind of lunar shop, maybe above it. And next to that, I'm trying to figure out what the name of this. So they, they have writings and stuff all over the, the different buildings, and it's really cool. But it looks like this one is called Pratico, and it looks like it might be some sort of just maybe trinket shop it has amulets talismans lucky charms and it, it has just one gold fish on it and then at the bottom in front of the doors it has like different fish bowls with fish inside of it and then there's a few buildings to the left of it but all of these things it's just almost chaos everywhere there's there's birds swooping in and out there's umbrellas everywhere i don't know why but there's umbrellas just flying around everywhere there's animals across the street there's like this little cobblestone street and there are barrels and honestly it is a lot like the movie when they come into the archway and you see it just crowded with people there's an owl that kind of flies over everyone and it, it's honestly kind of overwhelming to try and take in you don't know where to put your eyes you want to look at everything and i'm pretty sure this is probably how harry felt walking in and really quick, I wanted to also talk about the second page, which is actually the first page of Diagon Alley. I kind of got it mixed up. And in the first page here, you do kind of see more of this twisting, turning, like just characteristic of 
Diagon Alley. I think you might actually kind of see where it might turn off into Nocturne Alley. Maybe. It doesn't really say here, but it does say Diagon Alley on the left-hand side. And then you have a bunch of shops lined up. And I know one of the things that Jim K talked about was that he had a, a pet, I believe it was a frog, that was named Buffos. And so there's a store here named Buffos, and they sell frogs and toads, and it's kind of like an emporium for those kind of pets. Next to that, you it looks like you have some kind of wig shop, maybe above a broom shop. It definitely is brooms next, uh, Briggs Brooms. And next to that, it looks like it says Molly Grubs, and there's like different mushrooms and pumpkins and, and just plants in front of the shop. Above that, uh, it looks like a pet shop. There are cats and birds all over the place there. And the next to that is a shop that I'm not really sure what it is, but there's towering like sets of teapots and vases and furniture just all stacked along the entire storefront from the ground all the way up. And along the street, it's again, a cobblestone street. And at the very left is where it kind of looks like it turns down into what would be Nocturne Alley. But again, there there are umbrellas everywhere. On the far right of this page, on the roof of Buffo's, there, it looks like there's actually a small little dragon there. Not unlike the uh, dragon that you see in the like the the nut roaster in front of Weasley's Wizard Wheezies. And as I said, when you walked into Diagon Alley and in the movie, you felt like you wanted to just look at everything. It's actually what it says here. It says, Harry wished he had about eight more eyes. He turned his head in every direction as they walked up the street, trying to look at everything at once, the shops, the things outside of them, the people doing their shopping. And that's exactly probably how all of us would feel trying to walk into here. You want to see everything. I know that when I went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando, at Universal, that's exactly how I felt. I could not stop looking at everything. There was so much to take in, and I honestly cannot wait to go back because you can't take it all in. Like it, It's almost impossible to do it the first time. And some of the places that they, they went past was this apothecary and then Ilops Owl Emporium, uh, Tawny Screech Barn, Brown and Snowy, just some of the owls that were there with Ilops. They went past another shop where people had their noses pushed up against the window and they were looking at a broomstick and somebody says the new Nimbus 2000 fastest ever it says that there were shops selling robes shops selling telescopes and strange silver instruments Harry had never seen before windows stacked with barrels of bat spleens and eel eyes tottering piles of spell books quills rolls of parchment potion bottles globes of the moon and then Gringotts Hagrid actually points this one out. He says, Gringotts. They had reached a snowy white building which towered over the other little shop standing beside its burnished bronze doors wearing a uniform of scarlet and gold was. And thought is kind of interrupted with Hagrid saying, yeah, that's a goblin. And then we get this description of probably one of the first humanoid creatures Harry has heard about that he thought was just maybe complete myth. It says the goblin was about a head shorter than Harry. He had a swarty, clever face, a pointed beard, and Harry noticed very long fingers and feet. So yeah, Harry went down through Diagon Alley. They came to the huge storefront of Gringotts, and now 
face to face with the goblin. The goblin actually bowed to them and they walk inside and it says that they were now facing a second pair of doors, silver this time with the words engraved upon them. Enter, stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed. For those who take but do not earn must pay most dearly in their turn. So if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours, thief, you have been warned, beware of finding more than treasure there. Hagar then says you'd be mad to try and rob it. And then a pair of goblins bowed them through the silver doors, and they were in a vast marble hall. And it says there were about a hundred more goblins that were sitting on high stools behind long counters, scribbling in large ledgers, weighing coins on brass scales, examining precious stones through eyeglasses. And it honestly sounds more of like what you would see banking maybe in the early 20s and 30s, more than what you would see in modern day banking in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, where there was a lot of security with vault doors or really in banks, one giant vault door and like what you would see with the modern day tellers, not a whole lot of like coin counting and monies and like everything being out in front where everyone could see like it is here. Uh, it was very secretive today, almost very secure and low key where here you see them with just money out. They're counting it, coin stacking, weighing it, looking at jewels and it's very different than what we would be exposed to if we went into a bank today. We see Harry and Hagrid approach a goblin, say that you need to take money out for Mr. Harry Potter's safe. And the goblin asks you if he has a key. He says, got it here somewhere. Wondering, I'm guessing there was something somewhere, maybe some kind of wizarding law of inheritance or something that left Harry the key for his parents vault and everything that was left behind them maybe it's something with gringotts maybe it's something with the ministry i can't imagine why it wouldn't go on to the legal guardians of harry which would have been the dursleys or if maybe dumbledore stepped in or something something happened to make it to where for some reason hagrid ends up with the key in order to take Harry for these things. I don't know, maybe there's some kind of rule where muggles aren't allowed to have ownership over wizarding money. I don't know. It, it's really cool to think about. It's something that until this point, I didn't really ever think about. But yeah, for some reason, Hagrid has this key. And then we also see that Hagrid requests to take something out for Dumbledore. He says he's got a letter from Dumbledore, something really important. It's about, you know what, in Volt 713. Then we see the goblin yell for somebody to take them down. He says, Grip Hook. Grip Hook was yet another goblin. And all of us who have been through the series know the important part that Grip Hook plays later on. This is something that, even though it's not important until a very long time later, is pretty significant. And again, I just love that J.K. Rowling does this, setting this up. And maybe at this point she didn't know that it was going to be Grip Hook. Or that she was going to do what she does with Grip Hook later on. But it is really cool that regardless, this character is set up here now. And later on in the series, we're able to look back and look at this point in which they met. So Grip Hook holds the door open for them. And where Harry was expecting to have more marble, he was actually surprised that there was a narrow stone passageway lit with flaming torches. And it slopes steeply downwards to where they were led to a little railway track 
on the floor. And so they're moving underneath the building now of Gringotts. They're going underground, and they're coming up to this little railway system. And Griphook whistled, and a small cart came hurtling forward on the tracks towards them. They climbed in, haggard with some difficulty, and then they were off. And so they're kind of twisting, turning, going all through here. And Harry asks a question to which he gets probably one of my favorite answers to. He, he says, I never know what's the difference between a stalagmite and a stalactite. And Hagrid answers, stalagmite's got an M in it. And he says, don't ask me any more questions. I think I'm going to be sick. But that's one of my favorite sassy, sarcastic answers from the entire series. They come to their first stop. Hagrid has to lean against a wall to keep his knees from trembling. Griphook unlocks the door, and a lot of green smoke came billowing out, and as it was cleared, Harry gasped. Inside were mounds of gold coins, columns of silver, heaps of little bronze canuts. And it makes me wonder if this green smoke was some kind of defense mechanism that if anybody but a goblin had opened it up maybe it would have caused some kind of issue or if you're somebody trying to break in that gas would have kind of somehow made you unable to move if it caused some kind of paralysis or hallucinations or if it just did something to render you just unable to move or escape until somebody showed up. We know that some of the things that would happen is if you were able to get into a vault, I think it's going to be talked about here in just a minute, but people were left inside of vaults for a long time. And so, yeah, I, I wonder what the green smoke really was in itself, or if it maybe just had been that the vault hadn't been opened in a really long time. And that was just vapors or gas escaping. But yeah, the gas comes out, and Harry gasped inside the amounts of gold coins and the, the columns of silver and the heaps of little bronze canuts, as I already said. they He is just blown away by everything that he's seeing here. Hagrid says, it's all yours. And Harry thought it was incredible, and then he contemplates on whether or not the Dursleys would have known that he had piles of gold underneath London here. And then Hagrid helps him pile some of the gold into a bag and then he explains the currency to him he says there's gold ones are galleons there's 17 sickles to a galleon and 29 canuts to a sickle it's easy enough and he then looks to grip hook vault 713 now please and can we go more slowly he's still not enjoying the ride grip hook says there's only one speed so they're on the cart again and it says that they're going even deeper now in gathering speed, the air became colder and colder as they hurtled around tight corners. They went rattling over an underground ravine, and Harry leant over the side to try and see what was down at the bottom, but Hagrid groaned and pulled him back by the scruff of his neck. They arrived at Vault 713, and he says that it had no keyhole. Stand back, Griphook said importantly, and he stroked the door gently with one of his long fingers, and it simply melted away. I'm guessing that it was the door. And it just kind of melted away. And it says, if anyone but a Gringotts goblin tried that, they'd be sucked through the door and trapped in there. And Harry asked, how often do you check to see if anyone's inside? This is what I was talking about earlier. Griphook replies, about once every ten years, said Griphook with a rather nasty grin. And I think that's really cool that we see this, because something that we see 
later on, which I'm again, I know I didn't want to talk a lot about what happens later on, but I really enjoy some of the continuity that happens here. One of the things that we see about Grip Hook in the last book is kind of his delight at seeing wizards possibly being hurt or killed. Um, there's a delight in violence that he has. And so you kind of see that here as well. And so Harry expecting there to be something like really something really extraordinary in here being in this top security vault. He was like leaning forward eagerly. He was expecting to see like fabulous jewels or who knows what else. But the door is opened and at first he thought it was empty. And then he noticed this little grubby package that was wrapped in like a brown paper bag or just brown paper lying on the floor. I don't know why I had such a hard time saying that. And so Hagrid picked it up and then he tucked it deep inside of his coat. And something that I did want to point out, I didn't talk about it the first time through and I meant to, but their first ride down to Harry's vault, he had thought that he had saw a burst of fire at the end of one passage and he twisted around to see if it was a dragon, but it was too late. They had already plunged deeper into the tunnel. But as for the package, Harry longed to know what it was, but he knew better than to ask. So they get back to the surface and... Harry doesn't know where to go next with all this money that he has. He He's just indecisive. He wants to go everywhere and buy everything. And he says that he's had more money now than Dudley's ever had in his entire life. And Hagrid just suggests getting his uniform, going over to Madame Malkins to do that. Hagrid then says that he wants to go off for a pick-me-up at the Leaky Cauldron. And Harry sets off to Madame Malkins alone. And so, yeah, now we meet Madame Malkin. And it says that she was a squat woman, smiling. And she was dressed in mauve, and she asks if Harry is going off to Hogwarts and says that she's got the lot here, another young man being fitted up just now, in fact. And in the back of the shop, a boy with a pale pointed face was standing on a footstool while a second witch pinned up his long black robes. Hello, said the boy. Hogwarts too. Yes, replied Harry. My father's next door buying my books and my mother's up the street looking at wands. And I want to pause here for a second because this is something that I think could potentially be an issue. Again, it could also be nothing, but if his mom is out buying wands, or at least it says looking at wands, so it, could, it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that she also bought a wand for him, but... If the wand chooses the wizard, which we hear coming up in just a little bit, then why is she off looking at wands? Like, what is what is she going to be able to do in, like, this case of, like, him needing a wand? Like, I don't understand why he wouldn't be with her. And it, it's, again, not a big deal, uh, but it is something that could eventually, knowing what we learn about wand lore, could potentially be a plot hole in the entire scope of what happens with wand lore surrounding Harry and this young boy later on. And on the next page, we have this really dark portrait of this boy who is standing here getting measured, and you see the measuring tape moving itself around him. He has his blonde hair at a widow peak, this long forehead, and this dark scowl, and he's wearing the dark robes of Hogwarts and it has the green Slytherin accents to it and he's just standing here holding his arms up as he's being fitted so that he had a bored drawing voice 
And it says, then I'm going to drag them off to look at racing brooms. I don't see why first years can't have their own. I think I'll bully father into getting me one and I'll smuggle it in somehow. And you already see this pompous attitude that this little boy has dictating things. He's already, you see the the privilege in his voice, the not self-righteousness, but this air of entitlement already and the fact that he hasn't even made it to school yet and he already wants to start breaking rules you get the sense right off the bat that he is a troublemaker in fact the very next sentence is that harry was strongly reminded of dudley and the boy asks him if he has his own broom yet harry says no he then asks do you play quidditch at all harry again says no wondering what on earth quidditch could be And then the boy replies, I do. Father says it's a crime if I'm not picked to play for my house. And I must say, I agree. Know what house you'll be in yet. Harry then replies, no, feeling more stupid by the minute. And this is when we kind of get a glimpse into a very brief surface level glimpse as to what is to be expected when they get there. As he says, well, no one really knows until they get there, do they? But I know I'll be in Slytherin. All our family have been. Imagine being in Hufflepuff. I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? And Harry doesn't really know how to answer this. Says that he just says, mm, wishing he could say something a bit more interesting. And then the boy says, look at that man, nodding towards the front window. And Hagrid was standing there, grinning at Harry, pointing at two large ice creams to show he couldn't come in. That's Hagrid, said Harry. Pleased to know something that the boy didn't. He works at Hogwarts. And the boy then replies again pompously of him. Oh, I've heard of him. He's some sort of servant, isn't he? Harry then says, no, he's a gameskeeper. And it says that he was liking the boy less and less every second. The boy then says, yes, exactly. I heard he's some sort of savage. Lives in a hut in the school grounds and every now and then gets drunk, tries to do magic and ends up setting fire to his bed. This sounds like the kind of rumor that he would hear from his dad. Obviously, as we learn later, that his dad does not get along with Hagrid either. And he shares a very similar personality and attitude to his dad. And you really get to see a measure of their character here and how they are and particularly how this boy is. And... I just I I don't like it. I can't stand it. And it still points to one the fact that Hagrid probably is known for liking alcohol. But again, I don't think that he is an oaf in the sense of not knowing how to do magic. He's already performed some magic non-verbally and just excellently and it was just amazing already to see. Harry then stands up for him and says, "I think he's brilliant." And the boy says, "Do you why is he with you? Where are your parents?" Harry then replies, they're dead. And he said this shortly. He didn't feel like much going into the matter with this boy. And the boy says, oh, sorry, but he doesn't actually sound sorry at all. But he continues on saying, they were our kind, weren't they? Harry says, they were a witch and wizard, if that's what you mean. And the boy then replies, I really don't think they should let the other sort in, do you? They're just not the same. They've never been brought up to know our ways. Some of them have never even heard of Hogwarts until they get the letter. Imagine, I think they should keep it in the old wizarding families. What's your surname anyway? And that's probably really frustrating for Harry to hear as he wasn't brought up 
like that. He wasn't brought up like somebody who wasn't born with the knowledge of magic. He wasn't like he's essentially living a muggle-born life, not being a muggle-born. And having him hear this, even though he doesn't fully understand it, is probably a really frustrating and hard thing for him to to hear, especially in light of just like being bluntly asked about his parents like this. And I would also like to point out the fact that you see this prejudice against Muggleborns already, and I'm just going to say it out as Muggleborns, even though that hasn't really been established. He says the other kind; they are like our kind, aren't they? And Harry points out a witch and wizard, if that's what you mean. You already see this prejudice against people without magical abilities, basically producing people with magical abilities, and that's really disgusting right off the bat. These kind of prejudices, and I don't think really, I don't know how much Harry picks up on it. But you do see in his reaction and his reply the frustration with this conversation. And so before Harry could answer about what his surname was, they're interrupted by Madame Malcolm and says, It's you done, my dear. And Harry, not sorry for an excuse to stop talking to the boy, hopped down from the footstool and walked away. And it says that, well, I'll see what Hogwarts, I suppose, said the drawing boy. And Harry was rather quiet then as he's eating his ice cream with Hagrid that he had bought from him. Hagrid picks up on it, asking him, what's up? And Harry says nothing. He lied. They stopped to buy some parchment and quills. Harry cheered up a bit when he found a bottle of ink that changed color as he wrote. And then they had left that shop and he said, Hagrid, what's Quidditch? And this is where Hagrid then confesses that he forgets how little Harry actually knows. It's strange that he doesn't know what Quidditch is. And Harry says, please don't make me feel worse. And he told Hagrid about the pale boy and Madame Malkins. So he finishes up talking about how the boy said people from Muggle family shouldn't even be allowed in. And Hagrid replies, you're not from a Muggle family. If he had known who you were, he's grown up knowing your name if his parents are wizarding folk, you saw him in the Leaky Cauldron. Anyway, what does he know about it? Some of the best I ever saw were the only ones with magic in them in a long line of muggles. Look at your mom. Look at what she had for a sister. So, what is Quidditch? Harry then. he kind of, It seems like he almost kind of dodges what Hagrid's saying there and moves right into what is Quidditch. And this is where we first get our first real look into this and Hagrid says it's our sport. It's kind of like football in the muggle world as in like soccer, not in American football. Everyone follows Quidditch played up in the air on broomsticks and there's four balls sort of hard to explain the rules. And then Harry asks, what are Slytherin Hufflepuff? Hagrid replies, schoolhouses. There's four. Everyone says Hufflepuff or a lot of duffers, but, and then Harry just instantly comes in with, I bet I'm in Hufflepuff. And he says this, it says that he said it gloomily. And Haggard retorts with, well, better Hufflepuff than Slytherin. And there's not a single witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. You know who was one. And that is a line that we say, Ron say, actually, in the movies, um, for some reason it's given to him, but here it's Hagrid who actually says it. And he begins to say the name Vol, 
Sorry, you know who was at Hogwarts. That's Harry, by the way. Years and years ago, said Hagrid. But in regards to Hufflepuff and Slytherin, you see the, the rivalries being brought out already. That there are some sort of, I don't want to say issues, but there's some kind of almost competition between the different houses. There's something that makes whoever is in each house feel better about being in that house versus another house. And also being in one house versus like, if you're in a particular house, seeing somebody in another house still being better than somebody in another house, in particular, what we see, basically everyone says, well, better this house than Slytherin. Now we get a little bit of a Fast forward that you see them going and just buying the rest of Harry's school books at a shop called Flourish and Blots. Harry was so enthralled by the books in here that Hagrid almost had to drag Harry away from a book called Curses and Counter Curses. Bewitch your friends, befuddle your enemies with the latest revenges, hair loss, jelly legs, tongue tying, and much, much more by Professor Vindictus Viridian. And Harry says, I was just trying to find out how to curse Dudley. And this is also another instance where you see this book, Curses and Counter Curses, talking about how to bewitch your friends and befuddle your enemies. And his name's Vindictus, as in like vindictive, which means having or showing a strong or unreasoning desire for revenge. And Hagrid replies to this with, I'm not saying that's not a good idea, but you're not to use magic in the muggle world, except in very special circumstances. And anyway, you couldn't work any of them curses yet. You'll be needing a lot more study before you get to that level. Hagrid wouldn't let Harry buy a solid gold cauldron either. It says pewter on your list. But they got a nice set of scales for weighing potion ingredients and... A collapsible brass telescope. Then they visited the apothecary, which it says it was fascinating enough to make up for its horrible smell, a mixture of bad eggs and rotted cabbages. And some of you may be wondering, what is an apothecary? And so I'm going to go into the book, Harry Potter, A Journey Through a History of Magic. And in here, they talk about what an apothecary is. It says an apothecary is a term used throughout history to describe someone who prepared and sold medicine. The study of herbal and chemical ingredients led the way to modern sciences and today we refer to the people in this line of work as pharmacists or chemists. And it was cool. One of the places that I got to visit last time we were in Williamsburg, Virginia was more of a modernized apothecary. Again, this was built more during the times of the colonial period. And going in there, everything was organized by like the type of like material, creature, ingredient, herb, whatever it was, it was labeled and stored very well it was it was preserved for the time as best as it could be but you would walk into these places even then when there was still a lot of practicing with like leeches when it came to like removing poisons and stuff from blood 
you would find just all kinds of ingredients that were being tested and it wasn't out of the ordinary to find just things boiling or things being pickled in jars. And when I say things, I mean insects, creatures, snake venoms, um, you name it, they had it and they studied these things and they practiced with these things. And a lot of it did pave the way to what we have modern day science and modern day medicine. And it was a really cool place to check out. And I can imagine that being in Diagon Alley, it was probably that and so much more. As it says that there were things just everywhere and it had a terrible smell of like bad eggs and rotted cabbage. Said so there were barrels of slimy stuff that stood on the floor, jars of herbs, dried roots, and bright powders lined the walls, bundles of feathers, strings of fangs, and snarled claws hung from the ceiling. And this is where they would have went to get their potion ingredients. The Everything that we see them using in potions throughout the entire year would have come from this place. After they had finished in the apothecary, they stepped out. Hagrid checked Harry's list again. He says, just your wand left, and oh yeah, I still have to get you something for your birthday. Harry felt himself go red. He says, you don't have to. Hagrid cuts him off, says, I know I don't have to, but tell you what, I'll get your animal. Not a toad. Toads went out of fashion years ago. You'd be laughed at. And we kind of know what's coming up with that and who gets their toad. And I don't like cats. They make me sneeze. So I'll get your owl. All the kids want owls. They're dead useful, carrying your post and everything. And so it says 20 minutes later, they left Ilop's Owl Emporium, which had been dark and full of rustling and flickering jewel-bright eyes. Harry now carried a large cage which held a beautiful snowy owl fast asleep with her head under her wing. He couldn't stop stammering his thanks, sounding just like Professor Quirrell. And I was going to just skip over this part and get over to the wand, but Hagrid says something here that I think is really cool because you, you start to really get this father figure sense from him. We already established about how he is just excited about Harry and already is caring for Harry and the things that he was super excited about giving him his birthday cake before really saying much else to him, gives him a birthday cake. And you see this excitement and this care from Hagrid. And as Harry's thanking him so much and stuttering over his words that he's sounding like Professor Quirrell, Hagrid says, don't mention it. Don't expect you've had a lot of presents from the Dursleys. And it's just amazing to me that Harry already has this kind of figure in his life who really, for all intents and purposes, has been there for a morning. And Hagrid hasn't been around Harry even that much, yet he already cares so much for him. And it's something that Harry isn't used to. And it's something that I just, I love seeing. I love seeing a father figure step up. As I mentioned in my first episode, there there was a man in my life named Gary who did this for me. He stepped up for me and my brother, and he loved us. And it, it was in place where we didn't have that kind of love. And this is something that I will always love this story for. It is an aspect of something that I relate so closely to. And with that, we'll get on to Ollivander's, which is where they go next, to get a magic wand. And this is what Harry had really been looking forward to. And it says that the last shop 
was a narrow and shabby shop. Peeling gold letters over the door read Ollivanders, makers of fine wands since 382 BC. Now just doing quick math, that means that Ollivanders has been there for almost 2,500 years. Almost. Give or take 100 years or so. So as they walk in, they see a single wand lay on a faded purple cushion in a dusty window. A tinkling bell rang somewhere in the depths of the shop as they stepped inside. It says that it was a tiny little shop, and Harry felt strangely as though he had entered a very strict library. Then they hear a soft voice says, Good afternoon, and Harry jumped And an old man was standing before them, his wide, pale eyes shining like moons through the gleam of the shop. Hello, said Harry awkwardly, and Ollivander immediately recognizes him. He says, ah, yes, I thought I'd be seeing you soon, Harry Potter. You have your mother's eyes. It seems only yesterday she was in here herself, buying her first wand. Ten and a quarter inches long. Swishy, made of willow, nice wand for charm work. Then it says that Mr. Ollivander moved closer to Harry. Harry was thinking that he wished he would blink. Those silvery eyes were a bit creepy. Mr. Ollivander continues, Your father, on the other hand, favored a mahogany wand. Eleven inches, pliable, a little more power, and excellent for transfiguration. Well, I say your father favored it. It's really the wand that chooses the wizard, of course. And so we start to get this beginning with wand lore. Then it says Mr. Ollivander came so close to Harry that they were almost nose to nose, and Harry could see himself reflected in the misty eyes. And that's where... Dot, dot, dot. Mr. Ollivander touched the lightning scar on Harry's forehead with a long white finger. As far as I believe... This is maybe outside of when Voldemort touches Harry, the only time we see anybody other than Harry himself touch this scar. And it's so crazy to me that he just does it. He just reaches in and touches it. And here we get a lot of just information. Mr. Ollivander says, I'm sorry to say I sold the wand that did it. 13 and a half inches you powerful wand very powerful and in the wrong hands well if i had known what the wand was going out into the world to do he shook his head and then to harry's relief spotted hagrid so what we had just heard is that he sold voldemort's wand and gives us a description of voldemort's wand and also says that if he had known what it was going to do. He knew the wand was powerful. Obviously, he didn't know the person. I almost said the name. I don't want to say the name yet. We know what the person who bought it ends up being and what he does with it. But Hagrid caught his attention. Rubius, Rubius Hagrid, how nice to see you again. Oak, 16 inches. Rather bendy, wasn't it? It was, sir, yes. Good one, that one, but I suppose they snapped it in half when you got expelled. And Hagrid shyly says, yes, they did. And he's shuffling his feet. He says, he still got the pieces, though. And Mr. Ollivander retorts with, but you don't use them. 
And Hagrid said, no, sir. Harry noticed that he gripped his pink umbrella very tightly as he spoke. Mr. Ollivander continued, well, now, Mr. Potter, let me see. He pulled out a long tape measure with silver markings out of his pocket. What is your wand arm? And this is where he says he's right-handed, so I'm assuming that is what he means by his wand arm. So while he's being measured... Mr. Ollivander starts talking. He says, Every Ollivander wand has a core of a powerful magical substance, Mr. Potter. We use unicorn hairs, phoenix tail feathers, and the heartstrings of dragons. No two Ollivander wands are the same, just as no two unicorns, dragons, or phoenixes are quite the same. And of course, you will never get such good results with another wizard's wand. And so we get a little bit more wand lore there and a little bit of wand craft and it's again a lot of information right there which we will eventually talk about i don't want to get into it too much now but we will talk about it eventually so the measuring finishes up and harry starts trying out a few different wands the first one being a beech wood and dragon heart string nine inches and he takes it waved it about but mr ollivander snatched it out of his hand almost at once and then another maple and phoenix feather, seven inches. Try it. Harry tried, but he had hardly raised the wand too when it was snatched back by Mr. Ollivander. And he says, no, no, here, ebony and unicorn hair. And he says, go on, try it out. Harry tried and tried and had no idea what Mr. Ollivander was waiting for. The pile of tried wands was mounting higher and higher. And we saw in the movie that it was only a few wands that he went through. He broke some glass and pulled some drawers out with the wands that he tried. Nothing really worked there. But here in the book, he, he goes through a pile of them. And then he says that Harry's a tricky customer. But then he, he continues with, I wonder now, yes, why not? Unusual combination, holly and phoenix feather, 11 inches, nice and supple. And I want to point out really quick, that's the same length of wand that his father used. And so that was another really cool comparison. It says that Harry took the wand and he felt a sudden warmth in his fingers. He raised the wand above his head, brought it swishing down through the dusty air and a steam of red and gold sparks shot from the end like a firework, throwing dancing spots of light on the walls. Hagrid whooped and clapped and Mr. Ollivander cried, Oh, bravo, yes, indeed. Oh, very good. Well, well, how curious. How very curious. Which we see in the movie, that's pretty much what he says too. He says, curious, very curious. As all the dust and light and paper started to swirl around Harry as he grabbed this wand. And the way that he reacted... It makes me wonder if that's how every wand reacts when it finds its owner or if it was just that particular instance, I don't know, with, with Harry and it being special. I don't know. It never really explains that, but that's what happens with Harry. And so is he saying curious because of what he's about to explain about the wand and its connection to another wand or is it because of what happens when Harry gets this wand? I don't know. Really cool thing to think about though. Harry then says, sorry, but what's curious? And Mr. Ollivander looks at Harry with a pale stare. And he says, I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter. Every single wand. It just so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather. Just one other. 
It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother, why its brother gave you that scar. And so that raises a lot of questions like, did this wand choose Harry because of Harry because of how unique he is or because it felt a connection to maybe its owner in the sense of having the tail feathers of the same phoenix being in them. And since we know that there's a connection between Voldemort and Harry, which we're going to explore deeper in, but for some reason there there is a connection there. And so is the wand picking up on that? Is it picking up on the fact that, that Harry maybe is a good wizard or... Are there other underlying factors that aren't really being talked about yet? But as Ollivander says, and what I agree with, it is curious that this wand, which happens to be related to the wand that did what it did to Harry, they're connected. They're related. And so that is really curious. Says that Harry swallowed, but Mr. Ollivander continued. Yes, 13 and a half inches. You. Curious indeed how these things happened. The wand chooses the wizard. Remember, I think we must expect great things from you, Mr. Potter. After all, he who must not be named did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. And Harry shivered. He wasn't sure if he liked Mr. Ollivander too much. And he paid seven gold galleons for his wand, and Mr. Ollivander bowed them out of his shop. And again, I want to go over to Potter more really quick and read a little bit about Ollivander to you. It says the Ollivander family has long been associated with the mysterious profession of wandcraft. It is said that the name means he who owns the olive wand, which suggests that the original Ollivander arrived in Britain from a Mediterranean country, olive trees not being native to the UK. Mr. Ollivander himself believes that his earliest forebearers in this country arrived with the Romans and set up stalls, subsequently shop, to sell the ancient British wizards whose wands were crude of construction and unreliable in performance. Mr. Ollivander is arguably the finest maker of wands in the world, and many foreigners travel to London to purchase one of his wands in preference to those on offer in their native lands. Mr. Ollivander grew up in the family business in which he showed precocious talent. He had the ambition of improving upon the cores and wand woods Hirathro used and from his earliest days conceived a single-minded, even fanatical determination in his pursuit of the ideal wand. And so, yeah, that's Ollivander. It was a family business. It's been going on, as I said, maybe close to 2,500 years. He's following in the footsteps of his forebears, except it seems that maybe this Ollivander that we're seeing here really wanted to focus in on making absolute apex wands. He wanted to make paragon wands, meaning the greatest of. He wanted to make the greatest wands, and that's what he became known for, making the greatest wands. He is arguably the finest wand maker in the world. So Harry and Hagrid make their way back through Diagon Alley, back through the Leaky Cauldron. Harry wasn't really speaking it at all as they walked down the road, and he wasn't even paying attention to the fact that people were like gawking at him. After they finish their train ride, Hagrid asks if he has time for a bite to eat, 
And so Harry had a hamburger and they sat down on some plastic seats to eat them. I don't know what kind of plastic seats th these were that could support Hagrid, but whoever made them needs to sell them to the rest of the world because that's amazing plastic. And Hagrid kind of picks up on something being wrong with Harry. He says, are you all right? You're very quiet. And it says that Harry wasn't sure how he could explain. He had just had the best birthday of his life, and yet he chewed his hamburger trying to find the words. He says, everyone thinks I'm special. All those people in the Leaky Cauldron, Professor Quirrell, Mr. Ollivander, but I don't know anything about magic at all. How can they expect great things? I'm famous, and I can't even remember what I'm famous for. I don't know what happened when Vol, sorry, I mean the night my parents died. And you get this very understandable frustration from Harry. All of this is new for him. He didn't know any of this 24 hours ago. It's blowing his mind, and he can't wrap his head around it. He doesn't understand why he's famous. He doesn't understand why people are acting this way. There's a huge amount of expectation that's being laid on his shoulders, and he is very obviously and understandably scared of it. He doesn't know how to handle it just yet. But the way that he does handle it and the way that he is handling it is probably far beyond what any 11-year-old boy would actually be able to do. And I think a lot of that is the maturity that is in him based on how he has grown up thus far. Dealing with what he has dealt with with the Dursleys and their family and just how hard life has been in general has made him grow up in a way that most boys his age never even have to think about. In reaction to that, Hagrid leans across the table. Behind a wild beard and eyebrows, he wore a very kind smile. And he tells Harry not to worry about it. He's going to learn fast enough. Everyone starts at the beginning at Hogwarts. You'll be just fine. Just be yourself. I know it's hard. You've been singled out, and that's always hard. But you'll have a great time at Hogwarts. I did still do, matter of fact. Then Hagrid helped Harry onto the train that would take him back to the Dursleys and then handed him an envelope. Your ticket for Hogwarts, he said. First of September, King's Cross. It's all on your ticket. Any problems with the Dursleys, send me a letter with your owl. She'll know where to find me. See you soon, Harry. Then the train pulled out of the station. Harry wanted to watch Hagrid until he was out of sight. He rose in his seat and pressed his nose against the window, but he blinked and Hagrid was gone. I believe that Hagrid here just disapparated, which is another just amazing feat of magic by Hagrid, who for some reason in the movies is portrayed as a bumbling idiot, and I don't understand it. I think he is ridiculously powerful. Anyways, that's the end of this chapter. And man, there was so much in here. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed talking about it. And so if you have, please like the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. If you're on Apple, please leave a written review. It really helps for other people to be able to see it. The more written reviews kind of gets it out there more. Apple tends to show it more. I don't know why, but that's just how it works. Uh, so yeah, like it, share it, please. On whatever platform you're on, if you could, please share it on your social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you have it, please share it on there. I would love for other people to just listen to this and get to enjoy Harry Potter in this way and maybe get to think about things that they had never thought about before. And if there's anything that I missed, anything that you want to talk about, anything that you want to share with me or you would love to have talked about in general, email me, 
commonroomtalk at gmail.com. And again, thank you so much for listening, guys. It's always a pleasure. It's so much fun doing this. My name's Tony. I'm your host, and this is Common Room Talk.